chapter. Unearthed. Lisa tried to relax on the sofa with the local newspaper, since it focused more on minor local events. She detested looking at the television since every once in a while the news group would flash a blurb about the accident at sea. Reading a newspaper gave her more control over the subject matter. Her daughter sat next to her in the living room, reading a teen novel about kids being left behind after the church was raptured, while Brad was upstairs losing himself in the latest video game. Nicole was having problems getting past the same page. Over and over, she replayed Jennifer's words in her head about telling her mother about her dream. She didn't have a problem talking to her mother, since they had always had an open relationship. She just found it extremely strange to talk to Lisa about her father being alive when everyone else was saying he was dead. She knew her mother was hanging on to the hope Sean was still alive, so she didn't. Want to trouble her with what was only a dream. How's the book, Nicole? Asked Lisa, feeling a need to talk. Okay. What part are you up to? Same thing as before. Nicole shrugged, avoiding eye contact. It must be pretty good since you've been reading the same page for the past half hour. Nicole looked at her mother, wondering how she knew, but instead found herself verbalizing what was on her mind. Do you think daddy's dead? Lisa, taken back by the question, was expecting something more like, do you miss daddy? How quickly she forgot that her little girl was no longer little. It was time to treat her like a young woman. Nicole, I pray he's alive. Every living moment I pray he's fine. But where is he? Asked Nicole. I mean he couldn't survive in the ocean all this time, right? And if someone picked him up, then where is he? Why did they tell us he's all right? Why are they just holding on to him and telling nobody? Nicole, you're talking like someone told you he's alive. Nobody knows for sure right now, honey. Until they know for sure, let's continue to pray for your father's safety. Nicole looked at the book she was trying to read. Did you ever have dreams that seemed so real and didn't know if you're dreaming or not? Well, yes, I think we all have that feeling from time to time. Did you ever have that type of dream and like, no, it wasn't a dream? What are you talking about? Nicole stared at the book as if the words would leap from the pages into her mouth. I had a dream about daddy. Lisa relaxed a bit. Nicole, I miss your father too. There isn't a night that goes by I don't think of him. Nicole continued, ignoring her mother, determined to get it all out. I saw you and daddy in my dream the night of the fire on the ship. You were fighting some evil man, bigger than anyone I've ever seen before. He wore all black and dark sunglasses. Daddy walked away with the other one to protect us and disappeared. Lisa was about to tell her daughter that it was only a nightmare, like any other parent usually does when a child is frightened, when Nicole continued. It wasn't a dream. You like, fought this man like you knew he was coming and was prepared for him. He was, I don't know, five feet taller than you, and you took him out. The other one that took daddy was about to kill me when I ran after them, but daddy stopped him. Like, he made a decision not to resist it. I know, I know, it sounds stupid, and you're just gonna say it's a bad dream, but I believe daddy's alive and in trouble. Something has a hold on him and is gonna do something bad. I had this dream just before your ship exploded. I know I don't understand much about God like you do, but I do believe in him. I remember pastor talking about how God can give insight to dreams, visions and like, even understanding. I know God told me this, but I don't know why and who would do this. I'm confused, mommy. I don't know what to think. It's like I'm the only one who knows about daddy. Standing up, 
Lisa guided her daughter out of her seat. Come here. She hugged Nicole long and hard. Nicole tried to resist the surging emotions but couldn't. Tears began to flow, and then she was sobbing. She held her mother back tightly, unable to control herself. When Nicole started to calm down, Lisa sat her down and told her about Anne-Marie the Beckmans, Captain Trent, and Agent Brown. She left nothing out. After 30 minutes, Nicole looked blankly at her mother, amazed. So now you know, I was praying whether or not to let you both know, but don't tell your brother. I don't think he's old enough to understand yet. Like I wasn't old enough, said Nicole smiling. Mom, Brad's not stupid. He's gonna find out sooner or later. Do you want him to hear it from somewhere else or you? Lisa shook her head slowly. I have to stop thinking of you two as little babies. Mom, she said slowly. Okay, go get Brad, let's tell him now. I have a feeling things are going to get crazy around here anyway. Nicole smiled, remembering her mother beating up the tall man in her dream. You mean we're gonna kick some demon butt? Nicole, said Lisa half-jokingly. No, seriously, this is no trivia matter. Just remember, it's not by our own strength we do this. These things are dangerous and fierce. Just remember your dream. It was me who was doing the fighting, not you and Brad. Yeah, right. Whatever. Should I go get Brad now? That's Brad, said Lisa, trying not to laugh. Yeah, right. Whatever. Nicole ran up the stairs screaming Brad's name. Lisa was amazed how quickly the conversation went from speaking to a young adult to an adolescent. She shook her head. There was no doubt in her mind why parents found these years the most difficult to bear. Thump. Sorry, Sean, lost my grip, said Cal as he dropped the unconscious professor on the floor. Cal looked around the room. The only other items in the room were a sink, toilet, desk, and chair. The walls were of moldy cinder blocks, and the only lighting a rectangular fluorescent light 15 feet from the floor. Well, I hate to say goodbye, but my job's finished. Finally got my feet back on solid ground and going back to the easier cases. As for you, well, I hope you made a will because, shut up, you fool, shouted the dark assassin as he entered the room. Get your things and leave. You and your mate can return to your previous assignments as soon as you're brief. Cal nodded, obviously frightened by the man. But we can't just pop up somewhere. We need an alibi, he said taken care of. Now go to the safe house. You'll be contacted there. Cal rushed out the room, not once glancing back at the dark assassin. The dark assassin placed Sean properly on a cot and then studied his face for a few seconds. Your mother will soon see how serious we are, Duquesne. After the plane landed in London and Marie left the terminal without a problem, hop on a bus heading to the rural areas outside of London and mentally went over her plans. She later transferred to several different bus routes before finally ending up in a small town just outside Chelmsford. Fortunately for her, she didn't look or act like a tourist as she gathered information for her hiking adventure. She labored up and down the hills of the hiking path before venturing off into the woods. Anne-Marie had to negotiate prickly bushes, formable trees, and tough terrain. As a child, it hadn't seemed this hard but of course that was more than 50 years ago. She remembered that summer when her father was away on his expedition and her mother, being extremely depressed, sent the children to a nanny for the entire summer in this town. It was during this time Anne-Marie became familiar with the area. 
She was happy the terrain hadn't changed much and was within walking distance of the graveyard. The sun was starting to go down and the temperature dropped. She pulled a light jacket from her travel bag and then sat down on the lush grass. Still hidden from plain view, she stared at the graveyard down the hill and remembered the letter she received from her father long ago. It said, never forget the past, even though it may be buried. It tells us of the pains others have made to bring to light our very knowledge of being. The words in the letter always stayed with her throughout childhood since it was the last words she ever got from her father. She didn't know what it meant then, but today as she sat on the cold grass, it was all perfectly clear. She remembered the burial of the poor man her father befriended long ago. It was here she had to find the truth. She didn't know how her father managed to do it when he was away, but he did. He was a man of extraordinary abilities. She just wished she had his courage to carry out her part. Looking at the graveyard, she saw a few people walking by and others kneeling down to pay their respects to a long-lost loved one. She had to wait until dark, since there was no way she could do this during the day. It was overcast, which meant no lunar light to expose her actions. Anne-Marie smiled, here she was, a child of light sneaking around in the dark. Lisa sorted through the delivered mail and found a bulky envelope with no return address. As she opened the envelope, it hissed as some gas escaped. Inside, she found a note and a DVD. The note said, Hi, Lisa Duquesne. We've seriously discussed your last conversation with Agent Brown and agree with you. The last thing we both want is public exposure. Well, maybe you would, since it would benefit you more, but on our part, we would like to avoid it. Therefore, let's make an agreement. You keep your insides to yourself and will spare your husband's life. Yes, he's alive for the time being, but of course that depends on you. As you already know, we're looking for your mother-in-law, she is quite resourceful. However, she has disappeared, and we are quite confident she will contact you shortly. When she does, please tell her she must surrender herself to Agent Brown, or we will kill Sean Duquesne. Just in case you're thinking about using this letter as evidence against us. Sorry, the ink will soon disappear in a few seconds and the DVDs will become non-functional in a few minutes, so we suggest you watch it immediately. It was still early in the day, and the kids were upstairs. Lisa placed the DVD inside the DVD player, turned on the television, and watched the horror in front of her. The camera focused on a large man dressed in black with dark sunglasses. Behind the sunglasses, she saw two red dots, which could only be his eyes. He looked exactly how Nicole had described him in her dream. The dark assassin smiled and pointed to something off-camera. The camera moved and focused on Sean lying unconscious on a filthy cot and in a room with walls spotted with mold. I have to get him out of there, she thought. The camera pulled back as the dark assassin bent over Sean and placed his huge hands around Sean's neck. The dark assassin turned to the camera and smiled. This one is dead unless we get what we want. Tell Anne-Marie she knows what we want. He paused to add effect. And as for you, Lisa Duquesne, well, what can we say? If you want to play with the big boys, then I accept your challenge. Listen carefully since you can't play this message over again. Are you ready? Here it is. The dark assassin released Sean's neck and looked directly into the camera. You love this man, this we know. You'll do almost anything to save him. Then this is what you must do. One. Tell Emery he dies unless we get what we want and two, we want you and her to deliver the package. 
If you don't show up, we can't guarantee his physical condition. I think you understand what I'm saying. The dark assassin smiled as the video feed faded to dark and the DVD ejected itself out of the player with a hint of smoke coming from it. Why? Why can't I open my eyes? thought Sean. I hear many things, strange things around me, but yet I'm unable to focus. It's as though I'm in some state of limbo, forever damned to listen, but never to understand. I'm tired of this darkness. I want to open my eyes again and see the world around me. I want to feel the wind rushing through my hair, the warmth of the sun on my skin, and the presence of goosebumps when it's too cold. Want, want, want. I want so much, but yet I have nothing, for I know when I wake the remembrance of something will hit me to the point that I'll wish for death. But what was it? I can't remember. My mind is too fragmented. The only thing I know is I want to open my eyes and realize it was all a dream. I'm lost, this I know. Help me, please. The dark assassin looked through the locked door's window and stared at Sean in his prison cell and shook his head. It made no sense, he thought. He turned quickly as he heard a sound, then relaxed as he sensed the presence of another. He waited patiently for the other to walk down to the basement. Maybe now he'll get some answers. Albert Spencer slowly walked down the stairs, acknowledged the dark assassin, and then peeked him on Sean Duquesne. How's he doing? Alive. The dark assassin answered. Albert stared at the dark assassin. That's not the answer I seek. We're all seeking answers here. Albert nodded. I see. How's Ducan? Alive. The dark assassin answered again in defiance. Answer me, you rebellious fool. Albert snarled, his voice becoming less than human. The dark assassin jumped as the force of Albert's voice caught him off guard. Fine, I'm slowly weaning him off the drugs and he's regaining consciousness slowly, he'll be fine. There seems to be no adverse effects from the concussion he suffered. What concussion? You were told specifically not to harm him, said Albert. I kept your orders, however, you failed to notify the two fools who were assigned to him on the cruise ship. The Beckmans, asked Albert. Yes, they'll pay for their insolence. Right, the dark assassin said sarcastically. Albert was only a five-foot-six young man of regular build, dwarfed by the Dark Assassin's massive stature, yet the Dark Assassin treated him with respect. It was the power Albert wielded within, the Dark Assassin feared. However, at the moment there was obviously a lack of respect on the Dark Assassin's part. Albert sighed. All right, what's your problem? Finally, the Dark Assassin thought. We were first told to kill Sean and Lisa Duquesne. However, Lisa proved to be better protected than Sean, so she couldn't be touched. But the orders were changed to capture Sean and not to harm him. Why? He wouldn't be a problem if he's dead, and we wouldn't have to play this game with his mother. Once we found her, we would kill her too. That would greatly simplify our problem. But no. Instead of doing this, we're playing an idiot's game of kidnapping. We have your son. Give us the journals, the dark assassin said, sarcastically. If we killed them both, we wouldn't have to worry about the stupid journals. Albert shook his head. That's why you're an assassin while I'm in charge. Precisely, said the dark assassin. The order had to come from you. Why? Why did you change the orders? I don't have to answer to you. I have full reign here, said Albert, losing patience. For now, don't forget who gives you that authority. Albert sighed. You try my patience, minion, who wear, he said softly. 
Just answer my question, said the Dark Assassin. Fine, as you wish. With a great unseen force, the Dark Assassin was pushed off his feet and pinned against the basement wall. Albert snarled as he approached and shouted at the Dark Assassin. If they both die, then the journals aren't discovered and this whole scenario could be repeated in the future. We originally thought we could obtain the journals and eliminate Fairchild. Somehow he was able to get rid of it quicker than we anticipated. His daughter Anne-Marie was the only one to receive a letter from him before his death, but it said nothing of the journals. So we watched her for years with nothing to show for it, so we left her alone. After Albert Spencer wrote his manuscript, the coincidence was too much to dismiss. The grandson of Fairchild must be destined to complete the work. We obviously missed something. So I ordered a dream visit for Anne-Marie and found out she does indeed know where the journals are. How this remained hidden from us doesn't matter. In order to get those journals, we need to get Anne-Marie's attention. And to get her attention, we must ransom her son. That's why he must remain alive. We must get those journals. We cannot and will not let them be discovered. Now, you understand, you miserable beast. It's because of your kind's impatient act of killing Fairchild that we're in this predicament. If Fairchild hadn't been killed, we would have discovered the journal's location after we tortured him long enough. So don't you dare accuse me of not doing my job. Know your place. Albert released the Dark Assassin, allowing him to fall limp to the floor. The Dark Assassin shook his head and then glared at Albert, his red eyes burning bright behind his glasses. Albert stared back at the Dark Assassin, his eyes completely black. Do you wish to return to the pit? asked Albert. The glare in the Dark Assassin's eyes subsided. No, I do not. Albert relaxed. Then tend to my business without hesitation, for I will not falter in dismissing you. Yes, sir. Fine, first let's take care of this sloppy business of the Beckmans. They're at the safe house? Yes, sir, said the Dark Assassin, rising to his feet. Funny, they won't think it's safe in a few minutes, will they? No, I guess not, sir. Go upstairs and make the call. We have some work to do with Duquesne here. I don't believe in putting everything in one bag. If what we plan with Anne-Marie doesn't work, then I'd like to have an alternate plan. Duquesne is the key. The Dark Assassin nodded, then went upstairs to make the call to have the Beckmans killed and cremated. They'd served their purpose. It made sense to have them eliminated quietly since their faces had been seen all throughout the media. It would be too difficult to sneak them back into society. However, on the other hand, he didn't understand why the Duquesnes just couldn't be killed. He just didn't have the aptitude for playing. Albert glanced at the unconscious Sean. From what Albert had gathered, the resemblance to his grandfather Fairchild was uncanny, as if the man was reincarnated. Albert smiled, then shook his head. That was one lie they were all proud of. Once you die, that's it, no second chances. The key was to make Sean work for them without him even knowing it. His mind was what he wanted. After a few minutes, the Dark Assassin returned. It's done. Good. This is what we have to prepare for Sean Duquesne when he's regained consciousness," said Albert. Two hours later, Sean was moaning in his cot. Memories were beginning to rise to the surface as he slowly regained consciousness. Lisa, his conscious mind screamed. Lisa, where are you? I have to help you since you're hurt and unconscious. I went for help, but what was he trying to remember? He had to wake up, get up, and help Lisa. He had to help her. She needed his help. Why couldn't he move? Was he hurt? Was he dead? 
Was Lisa dead? Were they both dead? Was everybody dead? Were Cal and Catherine dead? What about the ship? The explosion, the horrendous sound. What happened? What blew up? Or did they hit something? Did they hit an iceberg like that? Shut up, he thought. I'm making no sense. I've got to get a hold of myself. First of all, am I dreaming? Sean paused to listen. The only thing he heard was the rapid thump of his heart. He didn't feel the rocking back and forth of the boat and didn't know what that meant. However, he did smell something, something musty and damp. Wait a minute, he thought, and then it hit him. He was on his way back to get Lisa with Cal when everything went black. Sean opened his eyes. Everything was blurry at first, but when they cleared he slowly looked around the room confused. He expected to see something confirming he was still on the cruise ship, but only saw what looked like a badly kept basement room. It was damp, musty, moldy, and closed. Sean tried to move but felt his muscles straining to comply. It was quite some time since he moved, so the initial effort caused a painful throbbing to his head. He felt lightheaded and very weak, but the thought of Lisa still needing his help, despite his unfamiliar surroundings, gave him the determination to sit up on his cot. The room was small. There was a sink, a toilet, and no windows. He saw another cot in the room, but it was empty. Sean took several deep breaths, trying to clear the cobwebs in his head and then trying to call out. Nothing came out of his mouth at first. Both his mouth and tongue were thick and dry. He tried to muster up some spit in his mouth, but came up empty. Slipping off the cot and moving on all fours toward the sink, he pulled himself up and drank heavily from the filthy faucet. The water tasted rusty, but at the moment, he didn't care. Sean slipped back down to the floor, cleared his now moistened throat, and called for anyone. Hey, he muttered at first. Hello, he said a bit louder. The cobwebs were clearing so Sean managed to prop himself against the moldy wall and moved unsteadily to the door. He tried the doorknob. It was locked. Sean stood there confused for several minutes. None of this made sense. Hey. Someone opened the door, he screamed. The image of Lisa lying helplessly on the floor flashed into his mind. Sean pounded on the door furiously. Somebody, let me out of here. Sean became lightheaded and fell to the floor, nearly blacking out. He heard the door open, pushing him back into the room. A massive arm grabbed him by the waist and hoisted him to his cot. Sean looked up to see the dark assassin staring down at him, red eyes still blazing behind dark sunglasses. He also saw what the assassin was holding in his other arm. Albert? Albert Spencer? Sean thought. Stay where you are Duquesne and you won't get hurt like this one, said the dark assassin tossing the unconscious Albert onto the empty cot. Albert landed with a thud. The dark assassin smiled. He was going to like this. Who? Who are you? Asked John, starting to tremble in fear as he gazed at the dark assassin's massive frame. The man was unnaturally strong to hold two fully grown men in both arms and to toss one like he weighed nothing at all. What's going on here? The dark assassin turned to Sean. Ask your friend here. He seems to know everything, Professor. Where are we? Where's Lisa? She's hurt and needs my help. The dark assassin threw up a mighty palm to stop the questions. He then slowly removed his glasses and smiled as Sean turned away squealing. Those eyes, those eyes, thought Sean. There's no eyes there, only dark red holes glowing unnaturally as if there was something else inside the man's body. It wasn't human, it's as if something powerful, something altogether hideous was using the shell of a human body to move around. 
I hope now you understand how futile it would be to stand against us. Remind your student when he awakes. The dark assassin replaced the sunglasses and then left the room, locking the door behind him. Sean remained in his cringed state for quite some time until he heard Albert's moaning. Sean slowly slid off his cot and glanced at the door, fearing at any moment that thing would come in again. When he finally reached Albert, Sean realized the boy's face was badly bruised with a busted lip and swollen eyes. It even looked as though he may have a couple of broken ribs. Sean crawled slowly to the toilet, rolled up some toilet tissue, wet in the sink, and then placed it on Albert's busted lip. Albert opened his eyes as wide as he could and looked at Sean. Shush, said Sean. I think he just wanted to make a point. If he wanted you dead, you'd be dead. Sean shook his head. I don't think anything could have stopped him. Taking hold of the wet tissues, Albert slowly sat up in his cot and started talking the best he could. Professor, I, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Shush, you've been through a lot, son. Rest a moment and we'll sort things out later. Shaking his head, Albert said, No, you have to know the truth. I'm the one who put you here. What? I was right, said Albert. Sean took a deep breath, fearing the answer to his next question. About what? he asked. About, about everything. It was too dark. The moon was completely hidden from view due to the overcast condition, casting no lunar light this night. No one would see her, but on the other hand, she could barely see what she was doing. Anne-Marie pressed the illumination button on her watch. One o'clock in the morning, there shouldn't be any stragglers around, she thought as she used the light from her watch to look in her bag and grab what she needed for the task ahead. She negotiated her way out of the woods and down the hill. Once on level ground, she realized how tedious the task was going to be since there were more tombstones than she remembered when she was a child. Finding the right one was going to take some time, but hopefully not too long since she had an idea in which part of the graveyard Jean-Claude Bonnet rested. Lisa walked outside her house and looked up and down the street. She remembered what Agent Brown previously said about always being watched. This came to mind when she looked at the envelope again. It didn't have a return address, and it wasn't stamped by the post office, which meant someone placed it with the regular mail. Someone had to be close by to put it with the rest of the mail as soon as the mail person left. Lisa didn't expect to see someone standing on the street looking at her, but the utility truck from the local gas and electric company working on something underground looked suspicious. At first, she didn't think about it because it was there when she and the kids first arrived, but she never recalled seeing anyone working. It was just sitting there. She went back into the house and phoned the gas and electric company. Metro Gas and Electric this is Jean I'm Langford, how can I help you? Lisa gave the name of her next door neighbor and address. Yes, Mrs. Hosser, how can I help you today? There's been a utility truck working on something in our neighborhood for the past several days. It's been an inconvenience and I'm wondering when they're going to be finished with whatever they're doing, asked Lisa. Yes, please hold, I'll check, said the customer service rep. After a few seconds, she returned. Mrs. Hosser, are you sure of the address? Excuse me, said Lisa, trying to sound irritated. Could you be mistaken about the address, said the rep. Where do you see the truck? I'm standing in my window looking at the truck right now. They have orange cones all around them and an open manhole. I'm sure of the address. It's where I live, Lisa answered. 
The rep remained pleasant since all calls were being recorded. Ma'am, we have no record of one of our work trucks being in your area. Are you sure? The truck says Metro Gas and Electric. I'm sorry, ma'am. We have nothing on record. If you give me your phone number, I'll call you back when I've sorted this out. Lisa took a deep breath. You know, to tell you the truth, forget it. As long as the work is done right, I don't care anymore, she said hanging up. Lisa looked at the truck again and prayed that God would grant her the boldness in what she was going to do next. She quickly walked out the door and approached the vehicle. As she got closer, she noticed some movement inside, and almost immediately a workman came out of the truck with a load of tools. Ignoring Lisa, he walked over to the hole and took some measurements with a measuring tape. Lisa ignored the man and proceeded to walk into the vehicle he had just exited. Wait a minute, the man with the measuring tape shouted. You can't go in there. Stop. As Lisa entered the vehicle, she saw three FBI agents seated in front of a variety of electronic gadgets. They all stared at her as if frozen in time and shocked at being exposed. Some of them seemed to have their hands on some concealed weapons, but then relaxed when they recognized the intruder. Before Lisa could speak, she felt the strong hand of the outside agent on her arm. One of the agents held up his hand for the man to back off. It was already too late. They had been discovered and might as well see what was on the woman's mind. Lisa looked at each agent with disgust. First of all, thank you for the envelope, she said, pausing to see if they would deny it. When they didn't, she continued. Tell Agent Brown I would like to speak with him in person about the cruise ship disaster. I have new information for him I didn't mention before. The three men stared at Lisa without responding. Tell him that unless he meets with me, I'll go to the media with my information. That wouldn't be advisable, Mrs. Duquesne. Of course, you understand the consequences if you do, said the FBI agent who had previously raised his hand. Lisa nodded. Yes, I do. The man had the same sick-looking shadow over his face Lisa had seen before on the waiter and Agent Brown. The other two looked normal and may not be aware of the evil battle being waged. She continued, However, from where I see it you can't do a thing until you get what you want. She paused. The man nodded, he understood. They weren't going to kill Sean before they got the journals, he was the bait for Anne-Marie. Good, said Lisa. Then send Agent Brown my message. Mrs. Duquesne, the agent said, Right now, you're on government property. I highly suggest you leave immediately before you're charged with trespassing. Lisa nodded. The man got the message but was trying to save face with the others. She backed out of the truck and walked back to her house without once looking back. Once inside, she continued to stare at the vehicle to see what they would do next. Within a half hour, the FBI agent dressed as a utility worker cleaned up the items around the truck and shortly later the truck took off. Lisa smiled. She knew they'll be back with a different disguise, but for now this day belonged to her. However, her next action against Agent Brown might be far more difficult. What do you mean everything? Sean had to hear the words from Albert's mouth. The sheer physical presence of their keeper was evidence enough, but he had to hear it. Have you read my report? Didn't you pay attention to it at all? I sent you an email some time ago, and, Albert, I didn't have time to look at it, so if you don't mind. No, I don't. Albert shook his head. Never did I think my work would get their attention. I mean, I had a strong feeling I was right, but this goes beyond anything I've imagined. Albert coughed and grabbed his chest. 
It's just a bruise. I don't think they're broken. Albert, said Sean, anxious to hear his explanation. Albert continued. It's what I've been talking about all along. It's a group of beings influencing government and monarchy, starting from almost the dawn of man's emergence from the rest of the animal kingdom. Sean shook his head. What are you saying? They're not human. I mean, come on, didn't you see that guy? Said Albert. Albert lifted the tissue from his lip and examined it. The wound was starting to clot. Why do you think they got me and you? I'm sure you're going to tell me, said Sean sarcastically. He didn't like Albert's theory when he was at the university, and he surely didn't like it now. Of course, the evidence was persuasive, but to believe that non-human entities were secretly orchestrating everything accomplished by man. To him it was, well, unimaginable. Albert shrugged his shoulders and lay back on the cot. Believe what you want, I don't care. Sean slowly rose from the floor and sat back on his cot. He remembered the appearance of his keeper and shivered. Was he one of the non-humans Albert was talking about, he thought. Well, what else could he be? There's nothing else on the list, only Albert's explanation. If it were true, then that would explain why Albert and me are here. We're the only two to have read something written about this unseen influence. That man wasn't human, was he? He mumbled. Albert turned to Sean. What do you mean? He has two hands and feet like us. He has a head, mouth, and ears like us. He walks on two legs like us. Albert shrugged. He looks human to me. Sean sighed. I guess I deserve that, he thought. His strength and eyes weren't. He answered. No, they weren't, said Albert. Do you know what he is? Asked Sean. Albert sat up slowly, still in pain. I have an idea, but you know, you probably won't believe me again. Too much has happened for me to understand at one time, it's hard. Albert agreed. I know how you feel. But remember this, as soon as I sent both you and a science magazine my report, I was picked up. Your office was searched, and then they put us in this place. How's that for coincidence, professor? He shouted, irritated. You don't have to shout. I'm right here with you, you know. Yeah, but I'm scared. These creatures scare me. If I know now, what I didn't back then, I'd keep my mouth shut and go on with my life, Albert answered. Sean realized Albert was mentally on edge and threatening to fall off. Being hard on him wasn't the answer. Sean had to be careful how he asked his questions. What do you think, he is Albert? Shaking his head, Albert replied. The only thing I can think of is a life form using us in a symbiotic relationship. A what? They use our bodies to move around while controlling us from within. I don't know what they look like, but from what I can see when they take over our bodies, we're nothing but an empty husk. That's probably why we've never noticed them. They use our bodies as ships. I'm pretty sure there's a lot of them out there controlling governments and key companies. They probably started wars in order to keep us distracted. It's mind-boggling when you really think about it. Everything we've done, everything we've accomplished over the centuries has been governed by them. Sean looked away from Albert. This was all too confusing. It's as though you were living some badly written science fiction movie, but the evidence of the man detaining them weighed heavily in Albert's favor. You've mentioned before in my class there are similarities between mine and Egyptian cultures and structures, asked Sean. Yeah. Then how did they move from continent to continent, since they used us as vessels? We didn't have the ability back then for intercontinental travel overseas. Albert shook his head, obviously perturbed. Hey look, I don't have all the answers like you might think. 
I only scratched the surface of something bigger than both of us. Sheesh man, give me a break. It's like I'm the one on trial here. I'm just trying to understand what's going on. Sean responded. The last thing I know, I was on a cruise with my wife. There was an explosion and now I'm here? I don't even know if my wife is dead or alive. She's alive and back home. Everyone thinks you're dead because they couldn't find your body. What? These creatures blew up the ship just to capture you. They made it look like a terrorist attack. How? How do you know this? Asked Sean, shocked. I was told. So Lisa's okay. Yeah, I guess. What do you mean by that? I have a feeling they'll use whatever and whoever they want to get what they want out of us, said Albert. Meaning? Meaning if they see fit to hold your wife's life in the balance to get you to do whatever they want, then they'll do it. How do you do all this? Albert looked at the floor. Because they killed my little sister already to get me to cooperate. When I went berserk, they took me away for discipline, then warned me that my brother was next if I didn't cooperate. They're bluffing, I hope. They didn't really kill your sister, did they? Albert remained silent for a while. They, they taped it, and, Albert, I'm so sorry. The two remained silent for a long while, making the silence awkward. Sean spoke up first, what do they want from us? Albert wiped several tears before answering. His voice shook as he talked. They want to know all we know, who we told, how we found them out, and to keep us quiet, he answered. Do they want us dead? Asked Sean softly. I don't know. It wasn't fair, thought Sean. He didn't want this. It was thrust upon him by a student who had happened to see more clearly than others. He didn't know anything. He didn't even read Albert's report. Sean couldn't help but wonder what they could possibly want from him other than shutting him up. If his death would help keep his family from harm, he would unquestionably sacrifice his life for theirs. Death, now that word held more imponderable meaning than before, he thought. If I die, will I go to heaven? Is there a heaven? Or were they all somehow deceived by these beings? Did they create religion in order to pacify human beings? And having us believe in a higher being, are they really having us put our trust in them? Surely, if they influenced human beings from the beginning, they must have had a handle on our beliefs. Albert, Sean paused. How could he ask this question? Albert, do you believe in God? Albert looked at Sean, almost shocked to hear the question so soon. Everything was going even better than he expected. Sean Duquesne was a man who put too much value on what he could touch and feel. Physical evidence was his weakness and his downfall. Had you ever seen God? Asked Albert. I believe there's a higher being that looks over us and cares for us, and, excuse me for interrupting, but in the Bible doesn't it say in the beginning God created all the creatures and the birds of the air? Asked Albert. Yeah, but, so he created everything, right? Yes, he did, answered Sean. Then that creature, that force that captured us, that monster that killed my sister, and those entities that influenced man from the beginning of time. Were they created by God, too? said Albert, getting loud. Sean remained silent. If God created those things, then what kind of God is he to do that? I mean, come on, the evidence. The physical evidence is right in front of your face, and you deny it. There's no God. The God from your Bible doesn't talk about these things. It talks about peace and love and a forgiving God. If there's a God, then he's a liar to have made such entities. But I don't believe he made it because there is no God. 
The only force controlling mankind was just in front of us a few minutes ago. There's your god. So, don't even try to get religious on me, because if you deny what you've seen with your own eyes, heard with your own ears, and touched with your own hands, then you're the most ignorant and deceived man on the whole planet. Albert lay on the cot and turned away from Sean. Sean stared at Albert's back for a long time before resting on his own cot. He folded his arms behind his neck, stared at the ceiling, and sighed deeply. Yeah, you're probably right, he mumbled to himself. Fifty, said Anne-Marie to herself, disgusted at her progress. It's been nearly two hours, and she hadn't found anything yet. In a couple of hours, the sun was going to rise, and she didn't want to spend another day waiting to do this all over again. There were times when she passed by the same tombstone more than once and had to retrace her footsteps the best she could in the dark. Fifty tombstones and no Jean-Claude Bonnet. She mumbled, turning off her mini flashlight, and continued to the next tombstone. And the next, and the next, and the next. Half an hour later, she stood staring at a tombstone in disbelief. Jean-Claude Bonnet. She said, relieved. Anne-Marie checked the lower part of the tombstone and smiled. As expected, it didn't have a date of birth. She turned off the flashlight, felt around in her bag for a while, and then produced a small compact shovel. This part was going to require a lot of patience and endurance. Lord, give me the strength I need to finish this. I'm already exhausted and don't know how much longer I can take it. Please help me. She said as a quick prayer as she immediately started digging around the tombstone. When she had dug enough earth from the stone, she pushed against it with all her might. The stone fell to the ground with a dull thud. Anne-Marie paused, listening for anyone who may have heard the sound, but the only thing she heard was her ragged breathing against the cool morning air. After a few minutes, she started digging where the tombstone used to stand. The kids were over at Jennifer's family from church to spend the night. Lisa thanked them for taking the kids for the night under short notice. She didn't want the kids around when her visitor arrived. Earlier that day, one hour after the utility truck left to be exact, Agent Brown called Lisa. Refusing to discuss details over the phone, she demanded he visit her at her home. Agent Brown reluctantly accepted. Lisa knelt at the sofa praying for God's word and wisdom to guide her, and bless her confrontation with Agent Brown. She spent a few more minutes praying when she heard the doorbell. The angels glared at the door, their eyes blazing hot, ready to fight. If the man made a single move to harm her, they would be all over him before he knew what happened. The door opened, and, just as Agent Brown had suspected, her bodyguards were ready and poised to dispatch him. They stood next to Lisa, not once taking an eye off him. One false move, and he knew he would be in trouble. He sighed. He didn't want to be here, but had no choice since he was ordered to see what the woman wanted. Mrs. Duquesne, he said trying to sound cordial. Agent Brown, please come in. Lisa pointed to the sofa while she sat on a chair opposite it. Agent Brown glanced at his watch. He was going to make this as quick as possible. He didn't like being threatened. He let out a big sigh. All right, what do you want? No pretenses, no deceit, no games. Are we to be honest with each other?" asked Lisa. I believe we know what we're both all about by now, he answered. Fine, then let me ask my first question. Do you plan to hold me responsible? I mean falsely accuse me for my husband's absence. That's been rescinded. 
Agent Brown glanced at one of the angels. He could have sworn he saw it smile. Were they mocking him? He thought. That's good to hear, she said, also inwardly praying that God be with her with what she was going to say next. Agent Brown, I'm concerned about my husband's health. The DVDs you sent me showed him in some unsanitary conditions. Agent Brown leaned closer to Lisa. That's to show you the severity of this matter. Maybe now you'll take us seriously. One of the angels pulled his sword and pointed it at Brown. He moved back and the angel relaxed. I've got to get out of here. Why did they ever send me without any backup? He thought. Is that what you wanted to ask? Because if that's it, I've got to go. No, that's not it, Agent Brown. That's not it at all. I want you to understand something, and I'll make it perfectly clear. You're an agent of evil and your soul will be forever damned if you continue on this path you're on. Look, I don't need you to preach. Lisa continued without stopping. You have sided with an evil that has been destined to lose even before it first was thrown out of heaven. Agent Brown stood up. He didn't have to listen to this. Was she desperately trying to convert him? He thought, never. I don't have to listen to this. Sit down, I'm not finished. Agent Brown took a step toward the door and found himself staring at the waist of one of the angels. He looked at the powerful face and saw the angel smiling at him. It pointed back to the sofa for him to return. Brown lowered his head and sat down. Lisa watched the whole thing and wondered what stopped him from leaving. She was so sure he was going to leave. Maybe she was reaching him after all. She continued, I love my husband very much and would do almost anything to see him back home alive and well. I was relieved to see him on the DVD, but also saddened that he was being held in such conditions against his will. I want to make something perfectly clear to you. I know you serve your master, Lucifer. Agent Brown shook his head rapidly. He had an idea what was coming next and didn't want to hear it. Lisa continued, Ever since he was thrown from heaven and Adam and Eve sinned by taking the forbidden fruit from the tree of knowledge, Lucifer has been out to destroy man. He has tried throughout the ages to destroy man but was always thwarted. He may be the prince of the power of the air, but he is still nothing when compared to God. Lucifer will always lose and never be victorious over God or his people. Now, listen to me good. Lisa leaned closer to Agent Brown, who was still shaking his head. You may think you have this situation under control and plotted every action well, but my God is in control. I'm not quite sure how he'll bring about the victory, but he will. You will lose and be caught up in your own scheme. You have joined forces with a losing side. Lisa stood up. You tell whoever's in charge that you're going against a child of God, God's angels, and God himself. And with all of that on my side, how could I lose? For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. That's enough. I'm leaving. Let me out. He said, staring straight at the angel blocking his way. The angel paused, then nodded. Lisa mistook Agent Brown's question as being directed to her. By all means, Agent Brown, just don't forget what we talked about here today. Agent Brown opened the door and then turned around. The angels were indeed smiling. They were mocking him. We didn't discuss anything. The only thing I heard was a desperate woman trying to hang on to what little shred of faith she has left. With that he left, slamming the door behind him. Ignorant wench, he mumbled to himself, she'll soon discover our true power. Sean stared at the ceiling for what seemed to be an eternity. 
Questions, doubt, and confusion flooded his mind, and he didn't have the answers for any of them. He felt small and insignificant, dwarfed by the enormity of the problem he faced. Is mankind merely a puppet race for a superior life form, using us for their own agenda? And where's God in all of this? Was everyone deceived in thinking there's a God? Did these creatures create that lie to keep men complacent? But what about Lisa? He thought. She was so sincere and pure in her personal relationship with God. She didn't just know of God, her very heart was deeply engrossed with him. Ugh. Sean huffed, he hated this. All he was led to believe in his religious upbringing was slowly falling away in the sheer evidence of these beings Albert unearthed. What's wrong? Asked Albert, trying to sound sincere. Nothing. You're confused about these beings, aren't you? Now, you know how I feel. There's much we don't know, and I have a sick feeling we may never find out, said Albert. That's not all, said Sean softly, shaking his head. What? I consider myself a religious man. I was brought up in a church. Not any of this science fiction junk you see on television. Oh yeah, it's entertaining, but I always knew it was real. Well, until now. Oh, it's more than not knowing much about them. It's about my entire foundation in Christianity being shaken. Sean turned away from Albert. Why was he opening up like this to a student? He knew Albert didn't have the answers, and even he didn't have the answers. He shook his head again. The best thing he could do at this moment was to deal with the situation. A parasitic, symbiotic race of secretive beings using mankind for whatever they desired. I'm sorry, said Albert, but sometimes the truth hurts. Yeah, said Sean, dejected. Makes you want to look at everything differently, huh? Albert looked at the back of Sean's head and smiled. I know, I know, hey. Sean turned around. What may keep us from getting killed is making them think we know more than we let on and that we have leak information to others, he whispered. Sean thought for a while. Is this why you got disciplined? Because you led them to believe that you know more than you let on. Yeah, I've been disciplined more than once, you know, but I'm still here. No, I can't do that, Albert. They didn't hesitate in killing your sister. I can't take that chance with my family. I'll just tell them the truth. I'll tell them that I don't know anything other than what you told me." Albert remained silent. It took Sean a while to realize he may have opened a wound by mentioning Albert's sister. Albert, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to suggest. Forget it. No, really I. Drop it, all right? We don't mean to go there. Sorry. Do what you want. I don't want to see you hurt, but if it comes down to telling the truth and lying to keep me alive, I'll lie every single time," said Albert. Sean shrugged. Can they be reasoned with? Albert looked at Sean in disbelief. What happened to you, man? Did you get hit on the head or something? Look at me. Are these bruises the result of reasonable people? Sean turned back to the wall without answering. They both knew the answer to that question. He was beginning to fear the time in which they'll be interrogating him. He prayed, no wished, he had the courage to face them. Albert continued to stare at the back of Sean's head. You're more than halfway there, thought Albert. I can feel it. It won't be long now. 30 minutes of non-stop digging of hard rocky earth with sore and calloused hands, aching back, and the rising doubt of this being the right gravesite was Anne-Marie's early morning plight. Hot streams of breath flowed from her mouth as she labored to unearth the journals under Jean-Claude Bonnet's tombstone. She was nearly three feet below the surface, 
when she heard the clink of metal against metal. Kneeling there panting for several seconds at the realization of almost being done, she continued to dig despite the painful warning from her body that she was hurting herself. The box was finally unearthed. It wasn't big, didn't weigh much, and posed no difficulty when she lifted it from the ground. Overwhelmed by emotion, Anne-Marie fell on her face and sobbed softly. It was all she could do at the time. After a few minutes, she realized she had only a little time left before dawn. She quickly returned the dirt to the hole the best she could, pushing with everything she had. She moved the tombstone as far as she could over the mess she made of the grave. She hoped it wouldn't be noticed right away when it became light. The way she left the tombstone might even suggest that some teenagers on a dare pushed it over. And Marie quickly packed her things and lifted the metal box. After backtracking for a while, she finally found her way to where she had entered the graveyard and back to where her bag was in the woods. She placed the box next to her bag and lay on the soft ground until sleep overtook her. Later she thought, why was she was crying? I've done everything expected of me and more. For a woman my age, I've accomplished a lot. I've evaded the FBI, I skipped the country, I dug up a metal box from a graveside in record time, and I've retrieved the journals. Yes, I got it. Thank you, God. Thank you. But why am I crying? And Marie opened her eyes from her deep slumber. It was raining and she was completely soaked. She looked at her watch 10.30 a.m. and immediately tried to move, but her body was slow to respond. This isn't good, she thought. With each move being more painful than the first, and Marie managed to prop herself up against a tree. She shivered in the cool air and considered her options. There was no way she could physically make it back to town in her state, and she definitely couldn't stay out here much longer. So the question was, what was the quickest and safest way to get back to town? An uncomfortable stiffness was slowly overcoming Anne-Marie as she sat there pondering her next move. It was a stiffness she never felt before, a stiffness that scared her profoundly. She wasn't well and had to somehow get out of this weather. The nearest road was two miles west of here. It was her only hope. If she could somehow manage to get there and hitchhike back to town, she might be all right. With great effort, she packed everything into the bag and headed for the road. She pounded out each step in the falling rain. Her legs were like lead, and she was becoming lightheaded as she continued. When she finally reached the road, she sat on the bag and waited for a vehicle to come by and waited, and waited, and waited. Nearly an hour later, she sat there in the pouring rain, soaked, waiting for anything to come by. As she stared down the road, praying for someone to come, the road tilted, her vision blurred, and then everything went black. It's like I told you, nurse, I was driving down the road, couldn't see a thing 10 feet ahead of me when I saw this bright light. I started slowing down because I'm afraid another car was heading in my lane. When I got closer, I saw two massive outdoorsmen. I mean they were bigger than anyone I've ever seen before. Well, maybe the rain distorted their height, but they were holding this woman saying she was very sick and had to get her to the hospital right away. You've got to believe me when I tell you they were right here just a minute ago. I don't know where they went. I don't even know the sick lady's name. I guess I was at the right place at the right time. It's all I can tell you. Maybe those two guys will show up soon, but hey, how can you miss them? The man looked around nervously for the two mysterious men who rode with him to the hospital. The nurse looked at him from behind her receptionist's desk in unbelief. Sir, when the emergency crew brought Missy's, she took off her glasses and looked at the paper. Missy's Sheila Hemlock, 
They only saw you and her in the car. No, they must be mistaken. They rode with me in the car all the way here. One of them even sat in the front seat. You can't tell me that. Fine. The nurse raised her hand, cutting the man off. Mr. Spiner, do you know if Mrs. Hemlock has any relatives we can contact about her condition? No, I mean, I don't know. I didn't even know her name until you just told me. So you know nothing about Mrs. Hemlock? Nothing. The nurse rubbed her forehead. Can you leave your address and phone number just in case we need to contact you again? And can you be the reference for this woman until we locate a relative? Yes, yes, by all means. Mr. Spiner rapidly filled out the form. How's she doing? He asked. Mrs. Hemlock was very fortunate you turned up when you did. We don't know what she's been doing for the past day or so, but she was extremely dehydrated, has a mild case of hypothermia and a faint case of pneumonia. We have her on IV and antibiotics at the moment, and she seems to be responding well, but she's still unconscious. When she wakes up, maybe then we'll get some more information. Do you want us to keep you informed of her progress? Yes, I would like that. Can I see her? The nurse shook her head. I'm sorry, but until she regains consciousness, she's in intensive care, which restricts visits to only family members. I'm sorry. Mr. Spiner shrugged. Please call me for anything. The nurse nodded and watched the man leave the hospital. The seven angelic guardians stood solemnly around the unconscious Anne-Marie. They didn't know what to think and were confused about what was happening. Anne-Marie was protected from harm with them around her. Her very steps were even blessed by God. This shouldn't have happened. It made no sense. She found the metal box containing the journals in victory was to come soon, but she faltered. One minute, she was resting peacefully from the strenuous day and night, and then before they knew it, her health deteriorated. They all knew God was watching out for this one. The seven angels, never doubting God's wisdom, knelt around Anne-Marie's bed and spoke words of encouragement and support to her. She wasn't conscious, but they knew her spirit was listening.